Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 24th of September and we're coming to you from London. This week, producer Rosie McCabe will be delving into the social media sensation TikTok and discussing the hateful and discriminatory content that exists on the platform and asking whether TikTok moderates this content effectively. In our sample, anti-Muslim hatred mainly took the form of content related to the Christchurch terrorist attack and the the Yugoslav wars and the genocide of of Bosnian Muslims. The Bosnian-related content included content about glorifying or denying the 1995 genocide at Srebrenica and the glorification of those responsible, especially the convicted war criminal General Ratko Mladic. And then producer Aisha Aldris will speak with our very own film critic Naja Satat who will be giving her thoughts on the award-winning and Oscar-nominated film The Man Who Sold His Skin, which is released in cinemas today. I think you're a... you're a genie. <laughs> Jeffrey Godefroy turns worthless objects into works that cost millions and millions of dollars just by signing them. You want my soul? I want your back. I work in Europe. But first, it's been a busy two weeks for Lebanon. Joining us to discuss recent events is the new Arabs reporter in Beirut, Will Christou. Hi, Will. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Uh, Lebanon has a new government. Uh, who are they? And is there a hope that they can pull the country out of its current slump yeah um you know here it's helpful to refer to the arabic name for the government which is which literally translate to salvation government and that's an accurate title because at this point lebanon needs salvation you know the country is mired in a crisis the likes of which the country has never seen talk to anybody on the street and they'll tell you that this is worse than any war the country has ever endured so the task ahead of the government is monumentous and difficult. But, you know, okay, so the, the new government is headed by a man named Najib Makati, and I'm not sure that anyone is excited about Makati. He's known as a moderate politician, he's been prime minister three times before, and he's one of Lebanon's richest men. Uh, he was chosen precisely because he is inoffensive and all the parties could get behind him. And he brings with him a cabinet mainly made of institutional characters, like Yusuf Khalil, who's the new Minister of Finance. Khalil is one of the chief architects of the banking policies that led Lebanon into its current financial crisis. So, you know, is there hope that they can fix things? Not really. Uh, The government has eight months before elections, and the problems in front of Lebanon are going to take years to solve. However, they can get the ball moving and set the groundwork towards solving these problems. It took them 13 months to form a government. Why has it taken them so long? Yeah, I think... The answer lies in the structure of the Lebanese political system. You know, Lebanon's political system is by design obtuse. When the French left in the in the 1930s, they designed the country to have a delicate balance of power between its 18 different religious sects. 
The president must be a Maronite Christian, the Speaker of the Parliament, a Shia, and the Prime Minister, a Sunni. And as you can imagine, this has led to complicated national politics. And the system has held the country back from progress for decades now. And, you know, this latest episode of paralyzing gridlock with the 13 months of no government is just an extension of that. But to get into particulars, the latest fight was between the Saad Hariri bloc and his uh, party, the, the Future Movement, and President Michel Aoun and his son-in-law, Gibran Brasil, uh, who leads the Christian Free Patriotic Movement. And the issue at hand was that the latter wanted what is called a blocking third of any future cabinet, which will allow him to effectively uh, veto any policy that he didn't like. Um, the new government set out a roadmap. What are going to be the policy priorities in the coming months? So they put out a real long roadmap. <laughs> they, the new government put out an ambitious nine-page statement of policy priorities this week. And these priorities range from fixing the power grid, restarting negotiations with the IMF, and finally solving who assassinated former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri in 2005. So there's lots to talk about here. But I want to emphasize that this government has at most eight months in power before the May elections. And, and what that means is that it will be limited in its ability to actually get these things done. One of their policy priorities is restarting negotiations with the IMF and unlocking international financial aid. However, this is a process that's going to take years, not months. So likely what we're going to see in the next few months are some initial steps towards the major issues. That means starting negotiations with the IMF, helping address the fuel shortage, and making some painful economic reforms. And, you know, we, we've already seen the last one, as the McCarthy government has already raised the price of fuel two times in the week it has been in power. And other forms of social support are on their way out as well. And how has the announcement of a new government been viewed uh, both domestically and internationally? And for people living in Lebanon, are they now seeing the light at the end of a very long and dark tunnel? Yeah, so, you know, the first reaction is, of course, a sigh of relief. Lebanon has been without a government for 13 months during the country's worst crisis ever. So to finally get someone, anyone at the helm, was a huge relief. And you, you immediately have international calls of approval. French President Emmanuel Macron says government formation is a very important step. UN Chief Antonio Gutierrez wishes McCarthy great success as well. So, you know, you get approval internationally. But, uh, you know, what I want to point out here is that government formation is the easy part. The hard part is now taking this government and making the necessary economic and political reforms to unlock international aid and address the country's crisis. That's going to be a painful process. And as for the people, no, they're not seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, to, to make a poor analogy, telling the Lebanese people that a government has been formed is a bit like telling a guy who's on fire that the city council just approved a measure to form a fire brigade. Uh, Lebanon's most pressing issue is the state of its finances. Um, has the formation of a new government helped this in any way? You know, it's uh, it's hard to say. It's a complicated issue. Um, on the one hand, they finally approved plans for a forensic audit of the central bank, which is sorely needed since the central bank has been essentially like uh, run essentially like a Ponzi scheme for the past few decades. But on the other hand, the man that's going to oversee that audit, Yusuf Khalil, played a huge hand in facilitating that exact same Ponzi scheme. So like anything else in Lebanon, it will depend on transparency. Will the audit be conducted transparently? Will Averez and Marcel, the company contracted to do the audit, actually get access to all of the central bank's finances? Who knows? 
we'll have to see if the political class, you know, takes this forensic audit in earnest or if they're going to take this as another issue to uh, another chance to cover for one another and perhaps even profit even further. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. TikTok has taken the world by storm. In just four years, the video app was downloaded more than 2 billion times globally, and it is now available in more than 200 countries. In the UK, it has recently overtaken YouTube for the average time per day users spend on its platform. For listeners who don't spend an average of 40 minutes per day using it, TikTok allows you to make and share short videos. The app offers seemingly endless bite-sized content that can be funny, educational or emotionally frank. It has eye-catching and stylish features, such as duets and filters, combined with popular tracks or amusing voiceovers. For those of you who might still be confused, the recent rise in popularity of sea shanties all started on TikTok. What makes TikTok different from Instagram, Facebook and Twitter is that it's driven by AI, rather than user-generated choices. It is more machine than man, as described by the New York Times. When you open the app, you're greeted by a For You feed, which includes content the algorithm has decided you might enjoy. The more you use the app, the better TikTok gets at selecting what videos will keep your attention for longer. For this reason, it encourages trends and inside jokes, funneling users down a familiar path, rather than exposing them to ideas outside their interests as defined by the AI. This means creators including those who upload harmful and extremist content on TikTok, can reach much larger audiences than just their immediate social circles, if they know how to use the algorithm and its features to their advantage. It means that we were looking for content that sought to denigrate or dehumanise communities based on their protected attributes. So these are communities... This is Kieran O'Connor, a disinformation analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, or ISD. So these are communities like Asian communities, or Muslim communities, or, or misogynistic content, or anti-Semitic content, and various categories like that. And then also white supremacy, which is a manifestation of a lot of far-right ideologies. The ISD is a London-based counter-extremism think tank specialising in disinformation and extremism. Kiron and his colleagues at the ISD researched the state of extremism and hate speech on TikTok and published their findings in a report last month, named Hatescape an in-depth analysis of extremism and hate speech on TikTok. This is one of the few research studies into the video app. First, I asked him how they define hate speech online. So we take our definition of Klaus Mude, who's a Dutch uh, academic on on right-wing populism, radical right politics, extremist politics, and we define the term, as, as he does, as groups or individuals that support or endorse political or social belief systems that feature at least three of the following five features of nationalism, racism, uh, xenophobia, or anti-democracy or strong state advocacy. During the ISD's research period, 1,030 videos were found featuring hateful content. I asked Kieran how we went about conducting this research. What we started off with was a list of keywords related to uh, extreme right groups, figures and ideologies or events and incidents, things like that. And we searched searched the app on, on a phone for content using or featuring these keywords. And 
there was a lot of content that you know was perhaps counter speech or was educational or wasn't espousing support for these kinds of figures but there was also content that was but then from there upon you know noting that uh, a lot of these accounts were were moving in kind of ideologically like-minded networks we then used a snowball methodology to expand our sample and what that means is that you, you go into the followers of these accounts you go into the followings who they're following and you look for other accounts that feature content that was espousing support for white supremacy for extremist figures maybe a feature terrorist content uh, or it also featured content that was anti-Semitic or Islamophobic or misogynistic or any of the categories that we used. Over the data collection period, the ISD found 312 videos promoting white supremacy. This formed 30% of the total sample. 246 videos were found featuring support for extremist or terrorist individuals or organisations, such as Adolf Hitler, Radko Mladic and Brenton Tarrant, the white supremacists who killed over 50 people in a gun attack at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, 2019. 81 videos were related to anti-Islam and Islamophobic content. In our sample, anti-Muslim hatred mainly took the form of content related to the Christchurch terrorist attack and the, the Yugoslav wars and the genocide of, of Bosnian Muslims. The Bosnian-related content included content about glorifying or denying the 1995 genocide at Srebrenica uh, and the glorification of those responsible, especially the convicted war criminal General Ratko Mladic. In the 1995 genocide, more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys were massacred. The killings were perpetrated by a Bosnian Serb army under the command of Ratko Mladic. In, in one example, comments on a video that contained clips from a Spanish movie about the, the genocide, which was just, it was just a movie there was, you know, an educational movie or a drama or something like that, but you can see that whilst the clip might be, you know, neutral in some respect, the comments featured, uh, posted in reply to that video, featured comments that denied the genocide. Uh, one comment said that this movie should be called The Myth of Srebrenica because it never happened. In terms of Christchurch content, we found videos that featured portions uh, of the footage of the attack that was originally live streamed on Facebook. Uh, on TikTok, it was used to celebrate the actions of the gunman to further spread the extremist ideologies and the conspiracies that motivated him and to celebrate the attack against Muslim people as well. In many instances, hateful content is created when clips are lifted out of context. This makes the task of spotting and stopping it very difficult. Stuff that is explicit in its promotion of hate or promotion of, of, of hateful groups or extremist groups, let, let's say content that has swastikas in it, has a hashtag Hitler on it. That stuff is basic and that stuff should be captured by AI systems almost before the stuff is even posted. It's the content and, and, the, and, the, and the activity that really falls in the gray areas that is particularly challenging and uh, totally acknowledge the challenge of that for platforms of that like, like TikTok. You can see when you look at this content how hate is nuanced and how hate is multifaceted as well. And it's an enormous task for, for, for platforms like TikTok. So, is TikTok doing an effective job when it comes to monitoring and removing hateful content? Kieron says it's doing some things right, but not enough. On the platform TikTok boasts and, and, and promote their efforts in removing you know, the bulk of objection and problematic content. I mean, in TikTok's latest transparency report, from covering January to March 2021, 
they say that they removed 62 million videos in this period and 0.5% of those videos were related to violent extremism. So TikTok do have success in getting this stuff off the platform or even stopping it being on the platform. But what we do see in this research is that there's an enforcement gap across a range of content. Over 80% of the hateful content found by the ISD on TikTok was still live at the end of the data collection period. TikTok has taken action against the content we've shared with them, but I think we can all agree that it's not up to third-party researchers to inform TikTok that there's videos from the Christchurch terrorist attack on their platform. The video app currently has 10,000 content moderators worldwide. Their job is to flag harmful content and remove posts or accounts that violate its community guidelines. We reached out to TikTok and asked them, how do users stop repeat offenders? Does TikTok issue lifetime bans? How does TikTok stop users from exploiting features, such as duets, to make discriminatory and offensive content go viral? They denied our request to come on this programme, but did send us this statement. TikTok categorically prohibits violent extremism and hateful behaviour, and our dedicated team will remove any such content as it violates our policies and undermines the creative and joyful experience people expect on our platform. TikTok's community guidelines, available online, read We take a firm stance against enabling violence on or off TikTok. We do not allow people to use our platform to threaten or incite violence or to promote dangerous individuals or organisations. When there is a threat to public safety or an account is used to promote or glorify off-platform violence, we may suspend or ban the account. TikTok is clear that it doesn't tolerate hate speech and does have courses of action that they can take. But do they work? Kieran says not always. TikTok enforces device bans. So in theory, you should be stopped. But one of the findings from our research here was that evidence that that hateful TikTok users are able to use simple um, ways to circumnavigate TikTok bans or content takedowns or things like this. One organisation, an Israeli social media political movement called Mahaskim, know firsthand how right-wing groups break TikTok's community guidelines then evade punishment. Now, in Israel, what we've been tackling is an organization called Lehava. This is the chief operating officer at Mehaskim, Aaron Nassan, speaking to the new Arab voice from Washington, D.C. Uh, and to understand Lehava, the, the soundbite, like if I had to put it in one sentence, Lehava is the Jewish KKK. Uh, this is the best comparison that I can, if someone is listening, that to comprehend what we're dealing with. Lehava follows a right-wing, Jewish supremacy, racist and nationalistic ideology which was formed by Mayor Kahana. Kahana was a proponent of the expulsion of all non-Jews, banning interfaith sexual relations and supporting other apartheid policy. It was a supporter of Kahana and his racist policies who committed the 1994 massacre in Hebron at the Cave of the Patriarchs. 29 Palestinian Muslims died when an armed Israeli stormed a mosque during Ramadan. Now, the context of our approach to TikTok or our demand from TikTok came in the context of the last escalation during May, a couple of months ago, when Lehava was a central and instrumental part of fanning the flames, of adding fuel to the fire, especially in Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, but not only. Throughout Israel, you saw organized violence 
by Lehava. During the bombing of Gaza in May 2021, the far-right group posted videos on TikTok. One allegedly showed an East Jerusalem teenager slapping an Orthodox teen. This was done to incite violence in an emotionally charged political environment. And Lehava was there to exploit that and to take advantage of that. And TikTok was the main tool. Using uh, racist content, racist videos, inviting people to take part in lynches, explicitly saying, we're going to take to the street, we're going to defend Jewish honor, we're going to find innocent Arabs, and we're going to attack them. And people listened, especially young people. Um, So we approached with an urgent letter to TikTok in Israel, but also global TikTok, demanding that they'll take immediate and decisive action. And they did. But it wasn't the first time that Lava was deplatformed. It was the third time, actually. Lava joined TikTok in October 2020 and was removed just weeks later. After a few months, they reappeared with a different account to spread the same hateful ideology as before. A lot of their original videos remained online. They're not back yet, but this is like a reoccurring um, method of going online, spreading as much hate and fear and incitement and racism that you can until they catch you and they'll put you in a timeout in the corner for a couple of weeks and then you go back. They don't block the device as far as we know. They don't delete the videos as far as we know. It's a timeout. It's a slap on the wrist. It just showed that we're not where we need to be. So, what is TikTok getting wrong? What should be done to stop far-right groups from getting back on TikTok after they breach its community guidelines? We need the tech companies to create teams in the regions with people that are native, that understand nuance and slang and can understand the political context and flag and take action immediately. Not wait until we report from the users or from the, the civil society and nonprofits. So this is the first thing. It's about being proactive and having uh, native languages content moderation teams that are aggressively monitoring and flagging content. Kiron also flagged this problem of moderation being skewed towards English language content, leaving a gap for far right and terrorist groups to exploit. For example. The ISD found evidence of Islamic State videos using Spanish hashtags. Both Erin and Kiron also agreed that moderating the video app can't just involve TikTok. Everyone, governments, civil society groups and users must get stuck in. Erin, Nissan again. The second thing is that the action cannot be only I'm going to deplatform you or I'm going to send you to the corner. When we talk about terrorism, Jewish terrorism in this instance, or hate speech, and especially when we talk about actual physical violence and incitement and radicalization, this is not enough that the the response will stay in the sphere of the digital world. That we need accountability, not only from the tech companies, but also from the governments and law authorities. The intersection between law and the virtual world will be something that is much more central and everyday for the tech companies. This is not about censorship. This is about saving lives. And some final words from Kiron. TikTok has shown that they've grown up and learned the lessons that other platforms faced in tackling this problem, for example, and their policies are quite robust. But this research shows they have, they have a way to go.
The Syrian revolution began over 10 years ago, and according to the UNHCR, it resulted in 6.6 million Syrian refugees worldwide and 6.7 million internally displaced civilians in Syria. The film The Man Who Sold His Skin, written and directed by a Tunisian woman named Kauthar bin Hania, depicts the story and struggles of a Syrian refugee named Sam. The film was nominated for the Best International Feature Film at the 2021 Oscars, being the first Tunisian film to be nominated, and it won the Best Actor Award at the 2020 Venice Film Festival. To top that off, it's being released in cinemas today. I'm Aisha Aldris, and I'm joined with the New Arab's very own Nerjas Zatat, who will be reviewing the film for us today. Hi, Nerjas. Hiya. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. This is an excellent film to talk about on this podcast. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this one with you. So what is this film all about? So this film is inspired by uh, Belgium artist Wim Delvoye's living work Tim from 2006. And it follows the life of Sam, who flees Syria, seeks refuge in Lebanon, and he meets this artist who offers to help him get to Brussels to see his fiancée in exchange for tattooing a Schengen visa on his back. So it follows Sam and his journey from Syria, um, sort of Lebanon, Europe, and how he experiences the kind of people there and how they experience him as well. Mm-hmm. And it stars Hollywood veteran Monica Bellucci, who's lovely, and also newcomer Yahya Mayani. I think the, while the narrative is a little clunky, um, and at times, you know, the film is, is on the nose... Uh, a little bit. It's it's doing really well in the film festival circuit. Mm-hmm. And in this film, there are really strong themes of freedom and a lack thereof. So that runs from the first scene right through until the end scene. So what do you think this film is trying to tell us about Syrians' relationship with freedom and particularly Syrian refugees' relationship with freedom over the past 10 years? So freedom is a thread Uh, in the movie that's constantly being pulled, it's constantly being played with, it's a question mark, really. Uh, And what's interesting is that Sam's life is never his own. Uh, It belongs to the Syrian government that arrested him. Then it belongs to the chicken factory he worked at. Then then to the artist, Jeffrey uh, Godfroy. And then to various galleries and museums. Um, And even at one point, he becomes the the embodiment of Syrian pride, Um, But none of that is his choice. All of those kind of ideas of freedom are acted upon him. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's what it says, how kind of the the, the experiences that Syrian refugees have um, in Europe, in America, sort of outside Syria. It's very much Sam's experience in the sense that their their, their freedom is also very conditional on the governments that, you know, that that help them or that hinder them. Mm -hmm. And throughout the film, the main character, Sam, is frequently objectified as being nothing more than the artist's work, to the degree that when he moves and comes close to a very white audience, they're almost disturbed. So how well executed do you think these scenes were? Do you think that they reflect a dehumanisation of Syrian refugees and all refugees in the West? There's a really powerful, uh, and as a viewer, frustrating and infuriating scene where he's literally on display in someone's house. And, you know, as the obscenely rich are literally dressed in white, uh, milling around a mansion and admiring his back. And that scene speaks to this parading around of the image of a Syrian refugee in the West 
in newspaper articles. And Sam was, like many Syrian refugees, reduced to an idea. And that's what, over time, dehumanised him. And, and it definitely reflects refugees in general and their experience uh, in, in the West. Mm-hmm, 100%, which is very topical right now, especially with the um, influx of Afghan refugees and the crisis that's happening there. So, I mean, the director was aware of the audience of her film and you can see that in the comedic elements throughout it some of which were almost in jokes with arab viewers and others subverted the white gaze so do you want to also elaborate on that for us do you think that the comedic elements throughout it were appropriately done and were there any poignant messages behind them there are a few instances where the black humor kind of bleeds into the dialogue Um, And it's interesting how different audiences take that on and interact with those scenes. It definitely gave me Get Out vibes. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I haven't, actually. Oh my god, you have to. (laughs) You you watch it now. (laughs) I'm on it. Yeah, it kind of gives me Get Out vibes in the sense that there were so many moments where Arab audience members will have completely empathised with an off-the-cuff comment or scene. You know, like when Sam corrected someone's pronunciation of the city he came from, or when he took out his earphones and people thought it was a bomb. Mm. Someone who doesn't experience systemic discrimination might not get the nuances of that scene and simply find it funny. Uh, So I think in that way, the white gaze was definitely subverted to allow for humour, but also it's not funny because those things are experienced by people, you know, in, in, in the reality of their lives. Um, so I, I don't know about poignant messages necessarily. Um, and I think this is maybe where the film fell behind a little bit in terms of what it was trying to say, um, particularly kind of towards the end. But I definitely think there were messages or th- there were conversations that were being had with audience members and viewers who experience forms of discrimination and so I think in that way it was an important and it is an important film yeah the film definitely is an interesting one so thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your thoughts on that love just no worries and to everyone listening if you want to examine the themes we've spoken about by watching the film for yourself then the man who sold his skin is out today Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was produced by myself, Rosie McCabe, and Aisha Aldris, with additional help from Will Christou and Naja Satat. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode, and in the meantime, you can listen to all our previous episodes on our website or wherever you found this one. Don't forget to follow at The New Arab Voice on Twitter and also on our brand new Instagram account, also at The New Arab Voice. You can also follow The New Arab on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.